martial arts gave me that discipline and structure to get things done. Before, I just couldn't get them done. A great idea, let's try it, you know, and I have an emotional breakdown or like stuff would just fall apart. Or, but once I got into that community and I had support and people on the same journey, it just made all the difference in the world. So to me, that's like my special elixir. And then I take that same structure and I try to put it into as many ventures and stuff that I can, knowing the value of it. I was um, watching your, your documentary, Bound for Blood. There's a lot of similarities in our childhood and stuff like that. So I would like you to actually take us back. Let's, let's go back to your childhood. Tell us what it was like for you growing up and how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, I, I had a troubled childhood. I was I had, had all kinds of emotional issues and had trouble fitting in at school and different social situations. So there was definitely something going on with me. And everyone was trying to figure it out, doctors, therapists, schools, because it was very disruptive. Um, but it wasn't until I uh, went to juvenile hall when I was 11 and I was hanging out with the juvenile hall kids and asking about, you know, how they were dealing with some of these things that were going on in their home. Um, because I assumed everybody was getting locked in the closet and living in the backyard and living in the tool shed and having these sort of, you know, uh, things happen to them. And I was just very surprised that everybody wasn't experiencing what I was experiencing. And, you know, the bad kids were telling me that this was child abuse and like, they can't hang out there. And when I was 11, I, you know, made a decision that I had to leave my home and the only real vehicle or tool that I could find was crime. And, mm. you know, when I went to my counselors and I said, Hey, this is what's going on. You know, this is what's happening. Their advice was stop doing it or they're going to take you away from your parents. And that's exactly what I needed. So I just kept, I just kept doing it. Um, then I became a ward of the state, uh, when I was 11 actually. And then I began moving through the state system as a ward of the state. You know, it's, it's amazing. Cause a lot of people probably can't even really picture that, you know, being 11 years old, like I can picture it. I was 13. I was getting in a ton of trouble in and out of juvie and it was kind of similar. I, they had me in this class at school called the past class, which was positive attitudes for success. And what they did at the school is they took people that had anger issues and stuff like that and put them in the same class with people that had other disabilities and they had a padded room. And so like I got locked <laughs> in a padded room. Talk to us about that experience. How old were you when that was happening to you when you were getting locked in a closet and, and some of that child abuse? How, how old were you? Well, I first became aware of it when I was about seven or eight. Wow. My mom got a new step-husband. You know, there was a new man in the house because I, I grew up without a dad. My dad was never in my life. And so there was a new man. And I remember distinctly him locking me in the closet when I was like seven or eight. And that was the first time that I remember it happening to me. And so, you know, from that moment on, I of course spiraled emotionally and had all kinds of issues. I would find out when I was 35 years old that my mother had been locking me in the closet since I was a child. Oh, and I never knew it until I was 35 years old. I was writing a book about my life. I met an aunt that I didn't know that I had. And the last memory she had of me 
was me hanging upside down in the closet by the back of my knees. And so I found that out when I was about 35 or 36 years old, that it was not my stepdad, that it was actually my mom the entire time. You know, as a grown man, that also, you know, was a, a big pill to swallow because, you know, I'd grown up, you know, disliking this man and thinking he harmed me and thinking, you know, certain things about him. And while he participated and was there, um, it definitely started before, you know, his involvement. So did you grow up feeling like, and feeling the, the blame, right? Hey, it must be something with me, something's wrong. Like I'm behind this oh, yeah. punishment. Yeah, totally. Cause it didn't make sense, mm -hmm. you know, until I went to juvenile hall and the kids were telling you, I thought everybody was experiencing this mm -hmm. and I just couldn't know how to deal with it. Like there was something wrong with my emotional ability to, to deal with it, but nobody understood, including me, how severe it was and sort of what the, the byproduct, you know, of it was. Mm -hmm. So, so Frank, I grew up with a single mom and I was getting in a lot of trouble. And then I went to juvie and was forced to move to my father's. So I had, a, I had that transition and I had my father who really was like my coach, who was the person who, who really helped change my life and turn it around. And I know it was a, a similar story to yours as well, right? Where you went to juvie and then what happened after juvie? What happened after that? Sure. I went to a few group homes and I kept using crime as a tool when I didn't like the situation. I would commit a crime. They'd come get me. I'd go back to juvenile hall and sort of reset. What I didn't realize because I was, you know, 12 years old was there was escalating security and all kinds of, you know, concerns about how I was progressing. Uh, but when I was almost 13, I was sent to the Shamrock Boys Ranch. And that's when I met Bob Shamrock. And he was the first real father figure in my life. You know, he was a, a Christian man. He was very family oriented man. And he was the first man to ever, you know, sit me down, give me a dad talk, speak fairly, you know, treat me well and give me value in my life. You know, his, his moments of giving me that respect and that value and teaching me how to be a man while I didn't listen and I kept getting in trouble. I would go on to prison and all the other things that I ended up doing, I never forgot the values that he taught me that I never forgot the things that he stood for. And, you know, he never left. Even when I went to prison, even when I got in more trouble, he stayed there as a mentor with his faith, stayed there with his guidance. And so when I was 21 out of prison, you know, there was only one thing for me to do. And that was to, you know, try to monetize this machine and follow his advice. And his advice was, you know, go put this thing to work. Go, go do work with this machine. There's a brand new sport coming out. There's a brand new opportunity and you can do this. And that's all I needed was to hear that. You wow. Know? Had you trained in martial arts, mixed martial arts before then? No, it didn't exist. Right. Nobody knew anything about yeah. it. Yeah. Brazilians knew some stuff and Japanese knew stuff, but it was new knowledge. Hey, Frank, did you feel as though your physical abilities and the later application of those was a gift for you. Was that a gift Frank had? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I am genetically gifted. And if you look at the size of my glabella, <laughs> twice <laughs> as thick as a normal human being. My I machine is built for fighting. Like wow. I got the perfect 
battle machine. Well, you said machine. I've heard you say this like five times. So did you build that machine in prison? I saw a picture yeah. of you when you'd first come out. And oh my gosh, you talk about machine. Did you do that in prison? Were you like in there just lifting weights? Or when did you get so jacked, man? Like when did that happen? Yeah, well, uh, Bob was really, Bob Shamrock was really into physical development. So from 12 on, I had a mentor who guided me in bodybuilding. I studied it extensively. Well, when I went to prison, I had nothing to do for three and a half years. I did everything to build up my machine because I'd lost everything. I had no education resources, literally nothing left. And the only thing left was this machine. And then, you know, this computer that I could keep building. And that's all the, the elements that were left to me. And then Bob Shamrock, my mentor, I just kept building knowing that, you know, we got to do something with it. So you, you got out of juvie, got into a a better environment, but then you ended up, I guess, going back into prison, right? Full-fledged yeah. prison, not juvie prison. And there was a, there's a unique story about how you ended up there, how you landed there, right? Which was, I believe, a robbery. And, and it was a restaurant. <laughs> One of my last jobs by 1990 or so, um, I worked at Taco Bell, but one night I was disgruntled. My wife had left and my life had kind of pulled apart. I decided to rob Taco Bell. So I uh, left the drive the drive through window open. I came back. I broke in. I took all the money in the safe. It was literally a giant bag of money. I went to exit. And when I was there, uh, when I came out, all the police, what are you doing? I was apparently a really bad criminal. So they, you know, they knew it was me. And so I ran. And when I ran, uh, the only way to get away from them was to run through this supermarket structure and run out in the, in the field in the back. And it was a dead of winter when I ran away to get away from them. I ended up jumping in the frozen creek in the dead of winter. Oh, no. Went down, came out the other side and escaped. But it went in the dead of winter. You know, it triggered the search and rescue and the police and the dogs. And oh, they boy. figured I was going to die. Oh, my gosh. That's how people die. Oh, wow. So you went one way, I went the other. And I got, you know, maybe two miles close to where I wanted to end up. So maybe I had half a mile left and all of a sudden the most wonderful warmth and euphoria and love. I, I would have sworn God was hugging me, telling me how much he loved me. And I stopped running and I laid down on the tracks and I went on, like, take, this is it. Like, I feel so good. Like it was the, the most wonderful feeling you've ever felt. It's because I had hyperthermia and my body mm -hmm. was about to die. Yeah. What happened next? This is the greatest interview. This is good. Yeah. What, what happened after that? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I realized that God wasn't coming to hug me. I was dying. And so I jumped up and ended up running to another place. You know, I found a friend who took care of me. Um, but that was the end of my rope. Like I knew like, wow, if I'm getting close to dying, I should stop doing the stuff that I'm doing. So you got away then. I got away. You ran, yeah. you got away. Did they, did they catch you later or did you turn yourself yeah. in? I, I, I realized that that was the end. Like I had to stop. Yeah. Okay. So I wouldn't and turn myself. Oh, you did. Okay. okay. Having the wherewithal in that drastic situation to recognize like, Hey, this is not, this ain't cool. Yeah. Yeah. This was, you. this was not good. This is not it. Yeah. Frank, what were you? 22, 23 when that happened? It would have been 18. Oh, still. Okay. Okay. And so after that, you turned yourself in and you went to prison yeah. for a few years and then you got out of prison. What happened after that? 
Uh, well, Bob, like I said, stayed, stayed with me, mentored me. This sport was growing, you know, mixed martial arts, the idea of professional wrestling, combat sports entertainment, all of it was growing. Bob saw this as a way. So every time he came and saw me or communicated, he would give me the update. Hey, this thing's going and this thing's going. And, you know, a few months before I paroled, he literally sat me down. He's like, Hey, you know, he did the work. You're big and strong. You know, if you're ready, it's here. And you can go and do this. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I was terrified. I still am terrified of, you know, physical violence, mm. although I'm really good at it. Wait, that's um, really interesting, man. That Isn't that unique that um, the things, your gifts usually do terrify you. Like I have a paralyzing fear of public speaking. I, and let me ask you this, Frank, my feeling on that is that the enemy right? Whatever you want to call that, the devil, the enemy, whatever, is trying to steal your purpose. And so it, he wants to make you afraid of it and wants to use that to paralyze you. So if you're afraid of violence, right? Well, that, that was, that ended up being your gift is, is fighting and becoming a champion, a world champion, you know, 10 times over, right? So talk to us about that. I saw in the interview in the Bound for Blood, it talked about how you fought Ken. Yeah, he did my tryout. And so back in the day, in order to get on the team, you had to do this crazy tryout, a bunch of exercises, and then you fought a professional fighter. Uh -huh. And it was really designed just to wear you out, get you as humanly tired as possible. So someone could get, beat the hell out of you. So you could see if you were really going to do this. Got it. it was just a psychological and physical, you know, trauma session to see if you really had the, the cojones to be a professional fighter. And so Ken did that to me, for me. What, what did you think, like, right after the, the beatdown? What was it, what, like, were you like, man, I mean, obviously you continued, but yeah. what were your thoughts, like, right after? You were like, man, this is, this, maybe I shouldn't go down this. Did you have doubts? <laughs> I, I did have doubts. Uh, I didn't even know what the rules were. Like, I didn't know you could tell, because everybody else was watching it on television. I was in prison. I had no idea what was happening in this development. I just got it from Bob and Bob spun it. Like it's like professional wrestling. I didn't really understand what it was, even though, and, and, and I went anyway, raised my hand, showed up, got my hand, like just everything. Yeah. So post that, you know, it was a real sit down with yourself moment. I had said yes, but you know, I don't know how many of you guys have had the living shit beat out of you for 20 minutes, traumatizing experience, yeah. physically, emotionally, psychologically. Like, you know, it's the only time in my life that somebody has ever done whatever they wanted to me and there's nothing I can do. Mm. And just that as a human being is a terrible thing to do. And then for me, because all those things happened to me as a child, the reason I'm afraid of violence is violence to me was horrible and unproductive and led to all these bad things. And then all of a sudden I'm the violence guy delivering it to be the most efficient with it. And wow. that was the huge struggle for me. I had to change how my brain worked and how I felt yeah. about it. And that mindset shift, that ability to look at something and go, oh, I got an issue there and then deal <laughs> with it. You know, I was so good because I was so afraid someone was going to kick my butt. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, forget that. I'll make sure it doesn't happen mm -hmm. through science and studies and knowledge and group. And like, I'll make sure through work, nobody will hurt me. Wow. Yeah. So talk to us about nice. that because you're like the master of it. You've written a book and from there you went on to Japan, became the UFC champion, right? Like talk to us about 
the the fighting career and the stages of that because yeah you're the best man thanks yeah well it started in japan i mean i started training in california in lodi california i didn't know anything like i didn't take martial arts i couldn't make it past a week i couldn't make it past anything for a week in sports some emotional issue or there'd be confrontation i just didn't have the capacity to deal with it because of all the things that were stressing me so um, I started training in April. I turned pro in December, moved to Japan in September mm. while on parole and I finished my training. I had my first fight December 18th of 94. And then I was a pro. I was a pro in Japan. I fought there for a couple of years. I was very successful and very liked because I just always fought my absolute hardest. Like I just go nuts and you know, there was some control, but a lot of going nuts, you know, as that happened in Japan. And I became more popular in the sport I grew in the United States. The money came over here with so then I migrated over and I started my career with the UFC and then mixed martial arts here. And you became UFC champion fairly quickly, right? Like how many fights yeah. in did it take you to become yeah. the champ? Yeah, it took, it took 14 seconds to, to win. Oh, oh wait, 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 hold on. What? Wow. What? Oh, wow. 14 seconds. Do you hold the record for the, the fastest? I, I did for some time. Okay. Okay. Then, uh, Ronda Rousey, Ronda Rousey, Ronda showed Rousey up. actually beat it. <laughs> wow. Um, but it's a Guinness world record because, you know, no one's ever done stuff like that. I'm the only athlete in the history of all recorded sports to win back-to-back -back world championships in less than a minute. In less than a minute. In less than a minute. Hey, Frank, was Mr. Bob. Now, was he involved in his history? Was he involved in, in, in combat sports? Uh, only as a, a, a fan and a spectator and then, you know, a, a believer. Yeah. Like he got it. He's like, no, no, it's storytelling. It's pageantry. It's fighting. It's not just one thing. Uh -huh. so he got it. He didn't do any of those things, but he could see it. And so he was, a, you know, an advisor and a motivator you know, in that way, but he mm -hmm. never sparred or did anything like that. How about Ken? Right. So you got on the team. How was your relationship with Ken at that point? It, it, uh, Ken and I always had like a distant relationship. Cause I just, I wasn't there, you know, when he was young Yeah. and then he grew up and him and Bob had a relationship, you know, the whole thing matured without my involvement. And so when I came in years later, you know, I was kind of like the, the stepbrother organic. And, and so, you know, it's always just a weird thing. Cause we never really connected. Then he became my teacher. Then he became my master. And so it was always yeah. a struggle and then we became famous and then we didn't like each other. Brother, we love. There was something in bound for blood that I really picked up on, which was about in your UFC contract. Okay. You, you had a clause put in to your UFC contract, something that was very unique. Can you tell us about that clause? Uh, for sure. Yeah, that was uh, what's known now as the champion's clause. Uh, but from our end, they basically said, uh, should I ever uh, renounce my championship? The rest of this contract is null and void. And it was actually an old pro wrestling trick from back in the day. But this sport had never seen it yet. My business mentor, lawyer, now father figure, Henry Holmes, you know, once I told him what I wanted to do, he's like, well, there's only, you know, you got to get out of this contract. You got to change the system. Otherwise you're going to get stuck and you're not going to be able to achieve 
the goals that you want to achieve. So yeah, that's why you see me uh, beat Tito, stand up on pay pay per view, give the belt back. <laughs> well, well, I want to dive into that because. Like, I've heard a lot of stuff about the UFC and low pay for the fighters. And maybe you can tell me if some of this is true, but I've heard fighters get 10000 just to fight, win or lose. I've heard they get 10000 if they win and maybe 10000 if they're, like, the best fight of the night, something like that. And that they can't wear, like, logos anymore. They can't wear sponsor logos and things like that and can't use their rights to their, their fate, you know, like, a lot of that's kind of stuff. And so there's a lot built into the contract and you saw that early, right? Like talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, in truth, I didn't even know anything about it. I was telling people my dreams and telling people my passion. And one of them was my fiance's dad. And when I told him, he's like, oh, well, there's only a few people in the world that have done what you're trying to do. I know one of the guys who's helped them people do it. Mike drop. I took a mentor, my first mentor after Bob. And this mentor was about business because I didn't understand. And then once I showed him and I said, Hey, this is my goal. This is what I'm trying to do. And he's like, well, you're not going to do it in this contract. This contract is structured, you know, this way and this way and this way and this way. Yeah. This contract early on, (laughs) they were just taking too much. Right. Yeah, well, I love the reason why I wanted to give you a mic drop for that is because I love the fact that, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know, right? You didn't know what you didn't know, but you were telling people your vision, right? And I think it's so important to dream big, to have big visions, to tell people, right, to get the word out. And the universe just tends to put the pieces in place. But if you keep it to yourself, right, if you keep your vision and, and, and that big dream that you have inside, no one will ever help you put it together. It takes multiple pieces, you know, and people to put it together. So I love what you did. You just spoke it out loud and the universe brought you the right people to make it a possibility. Well, and it sounds like, you know, reminiscent of networking, right? So in the context of a lot of our audience, you have to tell people that you're what you're looking for in order for them to be able to help you. They can't help you if they don't know what you're looking for. God works through people, and he says he will give us the desires of our heart. And look at, look at your life, and look what it's turned into. Now you're a dad, so you get a chance to either teach it or don't teach it, or teach whatever you feel like needs to be shared. <laughs> so I have a question, Frank. You fought Tito, who's a big dude. Too, oh, like, dude. Oh, like, my God. Know? And so, man, just smashed, him and then said, <laughs> boom, I'm out. So you got, I don't, I don't know, was that pre-Dana White or was that Dana White running the show at that point? That was pre-Dana White. Yeah. So, you know, they, they probably are looking at you and here's this new cash cow come along and that's done. You've, you've relinquished your, your championship. What do you do after that? Right? I mean, you've got this, this money, it's huge pay-per-view event and where do you go from there? Yeah, well, I had a, you know, pretty clear plan of what I wanted to do, which was fight, become a champion, use that as a platform to do the next stuff, you know, Hollywood, acting, producing, speaking, all the stuff that, you know, my childhood dreams. Um, so I saw it as a, you know, bridge to get to my destination. So you weren't Um, wanting to be a fighter forever. You're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my money. And as soon as I got my money, I was gone. He's like, I'm ready to do this. Okay. But then you got back into fighting, though. It's the worst bet you can ever make, your physical body. And so, 
if you look at it for what it is, it's something you should always be trying to get out of. Hey, Frank, you're at where you are now. What excites you now? Well, right now I'm really focused on sort of combining my entrepreneur passion stuff with my charity stuff. So this sort of philanthropic entrepreneur world and finding a way to tie into each other. And that's when I look at new business ventures, when I look at, you know, companies, deals, whatever. To me, it's what is the real value of that product? What uh-huh. are you really, truly doing? And, and that's what gets my excitement, you know, in, in business. And I say this all the time, because it's true. You know, my job was to convince America that cage fighting was a good idea. I think you did a pretty good job of that. I think it's a little bigger now. Yeah, it's, it's more. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed like a good idea. Yeah. But when I, what I really was trying to do was get martial arts to as many people as possible so they could experience the personal development mm-hmm. and they could have the same life and successes that I did, knowing that if I could come from all of that and end up here, this martial arts will help every human being on the, in the country. Do you yeah. believe and martial that, arts saved your life? Saved my life. Because without martial arts, you know, I had no community. I had no value. I had no dreams. Everything came from me walking into a dojo, involving myself with a community, learning the structure, learning, training, following this path. And so go back to convincing people it's a great idea. It's a great idea if we're all studying martial arts. Mm. We're not studying martial arts and we're just beating each other up. Well, it must take a lot of discipline, right, to to become the champ. I'm sure there's a lot of discipline, your your routines and and just everything that you go through to become the best, you know, pre-fighting, you, you were probably a wild child. You were probably running around crazy, getting in trouble, lack of discipline. Is that a fair statement? Oh, yeah. You know, martial arts gave me that discipline and structure to get things done. Yeah. Before, I just couldn't get them done. A great idea. Let's try it. You know, and I have an emotional breakdown or like stuff would just fall apart or, you know. But once I got into that community and I had support and people on the same journey. It just made all the difference in the world. So to me, that's like my special elixir. Mm. And then I take that same structure and I try to put it into as many ventures and stuff that I can. I just won our Basel program. We're, we're launching a nationwide suicide awareness and mental health awareness program called Vet Basel. And you can find out more at vetbasel.com. But what it is, is it's an outreach to veterans because mm. They're just like me. They go through this war. They go through this journey. They go through this specialized community. And when it's over, they just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't know what their value and their purpose is anymore. And so they begin to isolate. They begin to medicate. And then eventually we lose. Mm. Yeah. Frank, that's our audience too. Same thing. They lose their purpose. They lose a lot of that self-worth. Their identity. They, their identity. They get a lot of rejection. Yeah, that's our audience too. We've lost some to to the job search. And so that's why we're, that's our why. That's why we're doing this is exactly why you're doing that with the vets, man. So I, I appreciate, I really do appreciate that, that mission you're on. Mm-hmm. So how can we support that mission? How can we, how can we help you with that? Well, we need, we need volunteers. We're volunteer driven. So okay. anybody who wants to volunteer, you can hit me up at uh, frank at frankshamrock.com. And then I do have a job opportunity. Let's talk about that. Yeah. We have, a, have an open position for a project manager. 
dev, kick butt, entrepreneur, thinker. Mm. Uh, we've already booked out the next three cities for our awareness campaign. We're partnering with other events that are already, you know, there and boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. We're coming in as the social fabric. So what Basil is, is we get veterans in the community together and together we all paint American flags or unique flags. And then we gift those to gold star families, families mm. that have lost military members, or they take those home. It helps of their healing. Hey, Frank, I'm a veteran. So I had served and uh, was in the Air Force. So I'm just going to go ahead and put my name in the hat as a volunteer. I don't know if you're coming yes. to Dallas, but I'm, you know, member of the American Legion and connected in, plugged in with some of the veteran community here. So I'm, I'm a volunteer for you. Hey, Love it. let's go. Yeah. Do you have any Dallas events planned? Anything coming to Dallas? Um, we're going to go to Dallas in, uh, I'd have to come back to you. Yeah. But that's why I need a project manager. Cause I don't know where we're going or what's happening. <laughs> yes. He's okay. like, Hey, I, I'm the, uh, what'd you call yourself? The machine? The machine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's the machine. The machine just needs to show up. So how about losing, right? How, how many, is it like one hand you can count on one hand? Yeah. In truth, I, you know, if you look at my record, like I've lost you know, a third of my fights, I think, if you, if you total them all. What most people will see is, all, you know, most of that happened at the beginning of my career and then at the very end of my career, because I got old, um, you know, where, and this is what I want to give to all job seekers and people who are, you know, needing stuff. And when I got into martial arts, I went into an old culture and it was a culture where you didn't ask. Yeah. And so I didn't know that. So I kept raising my hand. Well, with every hand raised, you get an answer plus a beating because that's how the old culture was. Oh, question my mastery. I'll give you the answer and a little extra. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it took years to change that culture. Yeah, it did. I was the only guy with a notebook. I was the only guy raising my hand. I was the only guy getting beatings, but I was getting better each and every time nobody else got that. It was getting all the information. I was getting everything in notebooks. I was getting more attention and it hurt, but I progressed three times as fast as everybody else. It's kind of like, um, how do you know that you don't want to put your hand on a hot stove, right? Well, Experience. The first, the first time you do it, right? You're like, ah, I'm never doing that again. Right. So you learned a lot through that. Like, oh, that hurt. I don't need to do that. Um, how do you teach someone? Cause you do a lot of teaching and, and you've trained and you've trained martial arts and you wrote a book about it. How do you teach someone who, uh, is unwilling to learn, like who doesn't want it for their, for themselves? Um, you know, most, most people don't stay. Okay. And the, you know what I mean? Because it, it does require connectivity and vulnerability and authenticity and communication. And, you know, guys trying to punch you in the face, you got to get next to them and communicate about it. Some people aren't ready for that. Mm. Just personally, socially. Yeah. I wasn't ready when I was a kid. I would be the guy who would fall apart. Some people just aren't ready, but. When they're ready, they're like me, you know, it just, it's such a wonderful cloth and, and the feedback from it, the, you know, the personal impact you get, the connectivity, the community, like all the value propositions quickly overpower the fear and the, the uncertainty and the other things, you know, that are coupled with combat. And most people think it hurts to get your butt kicked. It doesn't really hurt. It just, you know, you get lumps up, some bruises, you're like, oh, that was unfortunate. 
but it doesn't really hurt all that much because it just, it's minor stuff. Your brain thinks it's really bad, but the reality is you and I could get in a fight. We'd beat each other up and then we'd be like, hey, you just kind of have some bruises and that sucks. Well, I mean, you did get your arm kicked and it broke your arm, right? <laughs> like, like I, I was watching the video and, and who was it that literally was, broke your arm with a kick? Was it one of those Diaz brothers? Tom Lee broke my arm with, with a kick. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, come on now. But in my, in my defense, I let him do it. I needed a story and a show that would take it to the next level. Yes. And the only story was that I was so confident and I was so powerful that I was going to fight this man at his own game uh -huh. and overpower him. And that story is what, you know, brought the city of San Jose together. Like we had a million people, one on each side. Mm -hmm. You know, it was that story. And then I was so tied into the story. I was like, nope, this is what's going down. Shut <laughs> my arm. <laughs> this has been this has just been the greatest like i, I could spend all day with frank man. So, but we do have a little bit of time left and i want to make sure that we we do a couple of things number one you have um a platform that you're associated with called the uh the morning man uh can oh, you tell yeah. us tell us about the morning man and then we've got a, a discount code that we want to give to the audience as well so tell us about the morning man Absolutely. Well, my mom was super into nutrition. And so even though we were on welfare, even though, you know, I grew up eating government cheese and sort of seeing the other side, she always made an effort to get natural foods, go to the health store. So she had this big belief in that. And that's something that stayed with me and that I learned okay. as a core value, feed the machine, care for the body, what's going into it and the value of that. You know, then I went to prison and the, you know, the fuel was cafeteria food and then I'm right. a fighter. And the fuel was whatever I could find to fuel it. Mm -hmm. And it was through that journey that I was like, man, there's got to be better fuel out there. Mm -hmm. You know, like what is, what is really truly going on? And that's when I got into, and that's when the greens market just globally started happening, you know, probably 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I started consuming greens and it just, it just made me feel amazing. And so since that time I've been consuming greens, but I've also been looking for and trying to find greens that serve my needs. And my needs are, I need my stomach to feel good. I need great nutrients of like a little bit of energy and it's got to taste good. And so I spent years and years looking for that and never found it. And so finally me and my three, uh, two of my business partners sit down and we realized, why don't we just create it and do the next thing? Yep. So we created the morning man drink and, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful tasting greens drink with a little bit of caffeine. And it solved my core problem, which is good nutrients. And then after I retired, I started, I got up to drinking six or seven cups of coffee a day. And it was the only unhealthy thing I had done in my life at that time. It was the only unhealthy thing that was happening. That, that's what I do. I do that. Oh. We, need, we need some greens. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Because I, of course, went to the, one of the best cardiovascular surgeons and doctors. And I had a great conversation with him. And he said, Mr. Shamrock, this is terrible for you. Is what mm -hmm. you're doing to the machine and what the, the, the lasting effects are if you do this for a term. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm like 10 years in. Yeah, I wouldn't have yeah. suspected that because, you know, like you got your, like my grandma, my grandpa, you know, like they, they Chuck drink coffee. Yeah, yeah, like, it down. yeah, they live these long, long <laughs> lives into their 90s and stuff. And like, yeah, are you telling me they could have been like 110? What, so, what about, what about, di I'm diabetic. Is it, is it low carbs? High, you know, protein, all that. All of the good tastes and all the tastes 
our natural fruit powders. There you go. Okay. That's where we get through that. Like, I love athletic grains. I love all these products. I've been consuming them all over the world for years, but I shuddered when I think about, I have to take greens. Nothing should be attached to that. And so that was like problem number one. We, it, it, it's got to taste good. <laughs> that was problem one. Problem two, got to be the best or I'm, I can't hang out. Frank, any last words for the audience? Oh man, last words. Um, people ask me often, you know, how I did all this stuff, right? Like how I went from point A to point B. And, and then that inevitably leads into a conversation about, you know, mindset. Because regardless of what happened to me, my purpose, my mind, my stuff was clear as day. Mm. I had it written down. I had it envisioned. I knew what I wanted to achieve. So when the opportunities came, I was rehearsed, ready, excited, <laughs> impassioned. And that's how I was able to attract the people, the mentors, the, the sponsors, the companies, the groups. Because when I went in, I believed I was all in, fully committed to a sport that had been kicked off of cable and was most likely dying. So however irrational it seemed, that passion, that purpose, that preparedness is what made me successful. And that came because I went, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to find out how to do it and talk about it. And then I'm going to make it happen regardless of what the results are. Mm commitment, write down your goals and speak it out loud. Like, I love that. He made the commitment first though. I just love that. Uh, one last question, Frank, before we go, you mentioned that you're hiring, right? You got that project management role. How do you want the audience to connect with you for that? If they're interested? Yeah. If you're interested, you could email me at frank at frankshamrock.com or do through my website at frankshamrock.com. And in particular, this is for project manager slash dev entrepreneur outside the box thinker Yeah, for charity is sponsoring this project for one year. Okay. And one year, yeah. our goal is to have this be a national program, have their nonprofit be settled, the systems in place and them continuing this mission of saving veterans lives. Thanks for listening to the, who, you know, show podcast. My name is Trevor Houston, and if you've enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing wherever you listen and leave us a positive review to help us keep the mics on in the studio. Until next week, that's the show. It's all about who you know.